I'm Aaron Stonestrong. <laughs> I'm Petra Morox. And I'm Bill Rocks. <laughs> and we love to watch. We love to watch says Yabba Dabba Don't. Petrified. <laughs> Bill didn't change his first name, and I didn't either. So we can't. You changed your. You changed your first name. Walk me through that, Peter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Makes it harder. And you also change your last name. They usually don't. His name isn't like f- uh, f- Fred Rock Flintstone. <laughs> yeah, like Blar- Blarney Rubble. It's just Barney. Barney Stone. Barney's just a popular name in the 60s. Uh, Barney! Yeah, what are we? We, are, we love to watch. We're a movie podcast. We pick a theme. We do movies over the course of a month on a theme. And if we remember, we compare and contrast. And we're in our second week of uh, 90s TV – or wait, 90s movies hit the big time, um, which is based on uh, the 90s onslaught of movies based on – uh, I think for the most part, we're safe in saying 60s and 70s television shows. Our, our goal here is that a lot of them were not very good. Uh, <laughs> most no. of them were not very good. We're actually trying to highlight ones that we actually think work really well, which we're kind of sandwiching the month in. We started last week with the, the two Adams Family movies. Uh and then we're ending with the two Brady Bunch movies. And I think both of those are kind of platonic ideals are if you're going to do this misbegotten idea of taking uh, nostalgia for shows that for the most part weren't that good and and crafting movies around them, that they both take different avenues to make good movies and in some cases even better movie sequels. Um, but we can't do this month without acknowledging that uh, after those two series, uh, it's a lot of it's a lot of shit stones. <laughs> and there were a lot of these movies made, <clears throat> like Rocky and Bullwinkle and Dennis the Menace. Like there were a lot of the these Mod sort Squad, of, the Mod Squad, like the adapting. Avengers, like the the other yes. Avengers. I mean, <laughs> yeah, the Avengers that has uh, was already forgotten by history, but is now somehow double forgotten by history. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they really wiped that one out <laughs> from uh-huh. existence. Uh, but because now they made enough Avengers movies that now that the, that one doesn't even show up in search results. No. Uh, and it's 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 they were kind of seen from a critical standpoint, from an audience standpoint. Like most of them were not all that successful. Uh, most most of the ones that we're talking about this month were successful, which is and so and there's some of the earlier ones, the Adams Family ones, uh, the one the Flintstones, which we're going to be talking about today, which led to the glut of uh, the ones that really ended up uh, getting no traction, and essentially the trend ended. Um, for the most part, uh, after the nineties, like they definitely still make movies based on TV shows, but it's not this kind of like, let's resurrect properties that these film studios own and make movies out of them. And we're talking, and today we're actually talking about the biggest hit of them all, um, which had uh, a lot of budget behind it, had a lot of star power behind it, was marketed as like, it was the Memorial Day weekend movie of 1994, uh, which is a, you know, the place where new Avengers movies 
that don't star Uma Thurman and Ralph uh, uh, Rafe Fiennes go. Um, and that is 1994's The Flintstones, which and, it, and to add something else to our focus, yeah. we're really focused on movies that are riffing on like a nuclear family. Like it's your average family, but. They're from a prehistoric era. They're your average family, but they're all goths. Yeah, um, they're an average family, but um, they they got, went through messy divorces, and, <laughs> or or have some sort of uh, dark murder in their past, or are uh, poor. Yeah, <laughs> they're your average family, but poor. Oh, so they're just your average family, and we're just making fun of them. Got it. But but actually, like, I mean, here's the thing: is that that's what, like '60s and '70s sitcoms, especially. That's what they were, right? And there's more that we haven't mentioned. Leave It to Beaver, which is they made a movie of that in the '90s that everyone forgets with Christopher McDonald as the dad and stuff like that. Like that was where sitcoms were. They were family comedies for the most part. Uh, that continued for a long time. And then, you know, in the 80s, you actually had like kind of different riffs where the, the family unit wasn't as connected. So you had stuff like Family Ties, which, you know, it has, you know, hippie liberal parents and a, and a, a, a Reagan-leaning Republican son. And you had stuff like Growing Pains where like this whole family doesn't really get along. And, you know, the dad's a psychologist. He should be good at helping people like – uh, with interpersonal conflicts or like uh, the Cosby show, which is about like, what if a rapist had some cute kids and stuff like that? Um, <laughs> and uh, high concept. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a little bit looking at it through the prism. And then obviously we, we've we covered Full House like that. That is definitely a trend that is, if anything has kind of um, kept going in different ways. And actually now it's really rare. Um, it's mostly like, uh, you know, the office was successful, stuff like friends were successful. So you ended up having like the, the, the family dynamics of friends, your adopted uh, family, your adopted family. And then later your on, workplace, like, your friends that you yeah. picked up along the way. Um, and so yeah, the fr- you're right. There's the front. You're basically, you're right. You're right. It's the friends model, mm-hmm. which is where how I met your mother and all those shows kind of spring yep. off of. And then there's the, the office model, which is like. If you pay attention, almost every show now is about, um, hey, what if a bunch of weirdos worked in an office together? <laughs> yeah, and and that and that you know that that's the Parks and Rec, that's the that's the Superstore model. Good shows. There's definitely bad shows that have been canceled and I've never seen. Just like there were for um, for seventies and sixties comedies in in their in their genre. And so now, when you do have these kind of family comedies nowadays, I mean, there definitely are. Um, there definitely are a few like I didn't I haven't watched One Life to Live it just got canceled for like the third time but mm-hmm. that's a remake of one of these types of shows and also something that people uh speak speak very highly of one of these days I have to get around to it although I guess I know where it ends because I didn't watch it uh as it aired which uh shame on shame on me for how many people like that and then there's stuff like that uh, uh I don't know if, if you guys have watched the Carmichael show uh, which is a really good riff of like the seventies comedy with uh with social uh issues brought up almost like an all in the family type thing. Um so you you it is these this these movies are riffs on family comedies, but or fa- family sitcoms from the seventies. But uh, you know, that was kind of it. I don't think there there were workplace comedies and a lot of them were very successful, like Mary Tyler Moore show and stuff like that, but just the fact that they 
had the workplace comedy was kind of a change of a change of pace. And this one is super interesting, at least from a not necessarily a movie standpoint, but from like a genesis of what they're doing, because the Flintstones itself. Um, actually, let me let me back up a little bit. So, like, Brady Bunch works really well. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. It's a parody of those sitcoms, and it is very, very good parody. Uh, Beverly Hillbillies, which we're doing next week, uh, I don't remember. I did see it in theaters. I remember it not being good. <laughs> I don't know if it's supposed to be a parody or what it's trying to do. We'll get to that. We'll discuss what it's trying to do. Um, Adam's Family is... It's it's taking the fish out of water stuff and putting it in a nineties um, in a nineties era and does it very successfully too. But it's I, it's not I I think it's not quite a, it's not really a parody of the Adams family. It's just the Adams family itself was sort of hey we're a weird goth family that everyone looks we- like let's transport that to the nineties and that's obviously uh, sustained two very successful movies. The Flintstones is weird as a property because it is a animated show that is meant to be a riff on another sitcom. Like it is a riff on the Honeymooners, um, mm-hmm. right down to the main character, Fred, um, and his wife with their with their neighbor friends that they uh, they spend all their time with, um, and then it's a riff on that. Plus, using animation, the the concept of like dinosaurs and stone age technology. So it, the Flintstones is already a parody of kind of one very specific thing set in a odd milieu of animation and dinosaur puns and stone puns as we've uh, talked about. So I think one thing I'm really interested to get into is like, how do you adapt these movies? How, if they are successful, what made them successful, which we talked about last week as well. And if they're not successful, like they think all three of us would say about this movie, is there a successful version of this? And, uh, you know, never say never, but I do think this is challenging because they're, they're not really parroting the Flintstones. They're essentially bringing to life with, um, uh, special effects and set design and costuming and performances, the aesthetic of an animated show, and then keeping the the elements that were riffing on the honeymooners, which kind of loses its whatever whatever value it had in the sixties, kind of loses. I'm a big John Goodman fan. I imagine uh, Bill uh, Aaron. Do you like John Goodman? Yeah, of course. Know. Okay. If it's on Spotted Dick, then yes. <laughs> you, you're you're a, a King Ralph fan, I imagine. Oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> when we do King Ralph on the show, uh, Bill, you you have first right of refusal. Don't worry. Thank you. But um, I love John Goodman. I find him extremely charming. I've loved John Goodman since I was a kid. I also grew up in the perfect era where, like, I loved him on Roseanne. He actually shot this movie between Roseanne seasons. I loved the movie The Babe because I was a huge, like, I had all those, like, kids book about Babe Ruth and Hank Aaron. And I I loved baseball. That was kind of my sport. So um, he played Babe Ruth in a movie I saw in theaters in, like, 92. And I fucking loved it. And then, yeah, yeah King he- Ralph was great. 
I even liked him in not great movies like The Borrowers and stuff. He's yeah. usually kind of he, he he's had a mixed film career, but usually he's the one of the most fun parts of even bad movies. Yeah. Like like Flight kind of sucks, but you talk about Flight fun. just way too much on this. It's show. it's like a, it's like a nexus. Do we need point to co- I've never like, seen Flight. Do we need to cover Flight to exercise? No, no, no. So it's just that it's an interesting nexus point of a movie because it's like um, it's like a director trying to get into the, the graces of like Oscar voters again, uh, after a bunch of misfires, but also it's a sto- it's a really poorly made movie about addiction, <laughs> but also it's got an amazing, um, action sequence that makes up the first 20 minutes. Like yeah. it's, it, it's got, uh, the most obvious music next to killing them softly. It's got the most obvious music cues ever put on a soundtrack. Um, I think you should like, watch. She's out of my league, a forgotten movie, but, uh. That's in contention. <laughs> in, I love killing killing them softly, but literally they play heroin, the song heroin, when they're doing heroin. I mean, I mean, hold on. Great, but in She's Out of My League, there's a part where uh, our protagonist, Jay Burchell, is like, I think she might be too good for me. And Tal Bachman's She's So High Above Me plays. Um, and it's like that the whole fucking movie. <laughs> God. <laughs> Uh, it's actually a movie that would be better if you didn't speak the language and only could yeah. they only translated the subtitles. Yeah. Um, but yeah, my point here is that I'm a, I'm a John Goodman fan. Um, well, and a Rick Moranis fan, right? Like, who's not a Rick Moranis fan? And yes, I am. But I think John Goodman is one of the biggest problems with this movie. And <sighs> I think yeah. the script is number one, obviously, because the script is not funny and it sucks. Um, but John Goodman's performance, which it sounds like it was hampered by both the director and the producer, Steven Spielberg. So the director. Brian no, Bond sorry. I, I saw the credits. I don't think Steven Spielberg is associated <laughs> oh, with Oh, is it movie. Steven Spielrock? Steven, Steven Spielrock, <laughs> who I checked his filmography. It's amazing he was able to get a $65 million budgeted movie off the ground because he has no other credits that I was able to find. But <laughs> someone named Steven Spielrock produced this movie. Um, and they think we're supposed to be really excited about it because it's the first credit that comes on the screen. It would be incredibly funny if uh, he got, like, in trouble with, like, uh, the Producers Guild or something for that. You like, think they're, hansl- they're hassling Steven Spielrock? Guy's <laughs> 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 untouchable. Um, yeah, Steven Spielrock gets in a little bit of trouble. He's like, you know how many bones I've brought in this industry? Clearly, it's name recognition. The previous summer, a guy named Steven Spielberg, unrelated. Um, unrelated. Uh, made a dinosaur movie. And now here's... Um, Here's more dinosaur stuff. If I drop the facade for a second, this was a two-year period where um, I, Steven Spielberg had his name attached to a few dinosaur things that made everyone fucking freak out. And most of them, besides Jurassic Park, were not good. I don't know if you guys remember We're Back, a dinosaur story. Oh, yeah. The, I, I liked that as a kid. Well, like a five-year-old. Yeah. That's also like it's Steven Spielberg, you know, we're back. And he I remember he did interviews at the time that said I my kids were too young to see Jurassic Park. And so I basically like produced another dinosaur movie for them to see. Uh, But, you know, I mean, Jurassic Park was just so amazing uh, and and a cultural touchstone of like, holy shit, I finally saw dinosaurs um, that, you know, there were a few of those that. He he had his hand in, and this was the next. This is literally the next summer. Here here you see all these dinosaurs, and he Steven Spielberg Rock is doing a Flintstones movie. Um, I, I was super excited for this. I saw this like four times in theaters. Now it did go to the theater that was six blocks from my house, so I could walk to it in the summer by myself because I was eleven. 
Um, and it was a twin cinema, so I think like the other thing playing was probably fucking I don't know, Rising Sun, and I couldn't go see it. <laughs> Tequila um, Sunrise yeah. and the Flintstones. Um, but uh, but yeah, I did see this a lot, and it's one of those movies that I kept seeing over and over because I like to see movies. But I never really liked it all that much, as even so at I. So I liked it a lot as a kid, and just getting back to the you were talking about the the, the Jackie Gleason yeah. um, honeymooners thing. I think Johnny Goodman is one of the key problems, and John Goodman's performance is one of the key problems in this movie. And I blame the director and the producer, um, whoever they may be. Um, well, he was the for, only one they wanted cast. I mean, I don't know how accurate this is for how his performances because they're doing the Jackie Gleason thing. Yeah, and there's a lot of jokes about how the Honeymooners is essentially um, a show where the threat of domestic violence is constantly hanging over every episode. And this is a movie that I didn't catch it until I liked it a lot as a kid. I didn't catch it till this watch, you know, whatever twenty years later. Um, that. <laughs> <laughs> uh fred flintstone threatens to clobber just about everyone he yells at his wife all the time <laughs> unless unless his wife is just like really flirting with him like he's always raising his voice to his wife like fred flintstone is a fucking asshole he is an movie. asshole but uh, he's so totally unlikable he and like i'm not sure why when i was a kid i was like I was like, oh, this is comedy gold. He looks like he's going to hit that woman. Well, so uh, <laughs> I think that's present. I, I do think so. Did, did you how much Flintstones did you watch at some point in your life? Uh, mm, I actually probably saw this movie a half dozen times and then watched the show on Cartoon Network when I was like, you know, 10 or whatever, okay. like Cartoon Network reruns. So I used to watch it when I was so uh this is like pre ninety because I had cable until we moved in like nineteen ninety. My parents decided the kids are watching too much TV. So uh, USA had I think it was like called the Cartoon Express uh, on every single morning in like the eighties when I was like so I'd have been like five or six, and they would just basically show Hanna Barbera cartoons. So um, you had Flintstones and then you had like Magilla Gorilla and whatever the fucking pink. Uh, suffering succotash guy is and the the horse that draws a quick draw McGraw and like all those other I think there's an alligator somewhere in there and then of course like the Jetsons and Yogi Bear and stuff like that so yeah um, and they would just show that for like three four hours every morning um, so that's when I would watch the Flintstones it was just kind of part of this like milieu of I like cartoons and cartoons are on and I'm five years old um, but I we did have a tape of a few episodes that I used to watch over and over. So my main memory of the Flintstones is we had a, a just one of those random like here's three episodes of the Flintstones for 20 bucks and my parents bought it. So I watched those episodes over and over and I my memory of that is pretty clear and I think and I think this is happening in the movie too. I think because this is ostensibly a show for children Although I don't know how true that was in the 60s. We, I want to get into that a little bit because this movie is very much not a movie for children, even though it, <laughs> like, like if you like embezzlement and wanting to fuck your secretary. Have, I never when I was a kid, I never understood why he had to go on the run. I was I was old. So when this movie came out, I was old enough that watching it in 
theaters with my parents the first time was uncomfortable at parts. Um, when like, uh, you know, Halle Berry fucking straddles Fred Flintstone's dick and is like, don't be afraid <laughs> to ride me. I'm like, I was a she little. Says, use me however you yeah, want. Yeah, use me like, however you want. And like. It uh, was deeply uncomfortable, like with my parents <laughs> sitting right there. Who um, was this targeted at? I mean, I, well, I think that's that. That's why this movie got a, a lot. That's of, a little something for daddy, you know. It's ostensibly is it for, for the daddy kids, because it's a the, for daddy. But theoretically, the daddy is seeing it with their kids, and it's probably uncomfortable for him too. Um, so I remember seeing Waterboy with my dad, and there's like a bunch of sex stuff in it. And I remember just sitting there, white, white knuckled, while everyone around us was laughing. Uh, like, yeah, it's like I, a movie for ten to twelve year old boys. Like that's the target demographic. Yeah, exactly. So I think the thing with the cartoon, and they do this, is that because the Flintstones is a parody of the Honeymooners, um, it's actually it it positions someone as a Jackie Gleason who gets mad at his wife. And threatens to punch her, to punch um, her all the way to the moon, all the way to the moon. Which you, you know how much you know how much strength it would take to punch someone to the moon. Yeah, I mean, astro- amateur astronomers take note. That's not a small punch. Um, uh, Bill, you're a physics guy. How much strength would it take to punch? I feel like it would take his entire arm with it. Yeah, absolutely. And I dare say, you know, his wife would burn up trying to leave the atmosphere. She'd have to be punched so hard. So I think the idea of the Flintstones was because they weren't doing that, um, is that Fred Flintstone and maybe this was the I never really watched the Honeymooner. So I can't say like if it was a direct riff or sort of a subversion of it was that Wilma never took Fred seriously. So you see that in this movie too, where he's, you know, that he actually does not have the control in the relationship that Wilma rolls his eyes at her, his threats of violence, which again, maybe happened in the honeymooners as well. I don't know. Um, but it, it's like that, Wilma, if you don't do this, and, and they're like, Fred, knock it off. And he's like, I'm sorry, Wilma. Like it's, um, it's it's an empty threat from someone who actually has no standing in the relationship, and that was very true of the cartoon, right? Like he was a fuck up, he talked a big game, and was ultimately uh, a sixties uh, husband protagonist who was uh, scared of his wife, and his uh, you know his wife seemed to just think he was a, a dickhead, but he brought home money, and that's how marriages used to work. Uh, <laughs> so, and probably st- still work now, probably to some extent. I don't know. Um, so I think this movie's doing a little bit of that because, like, he does do that. But I think the implication is is that he is actually like a scared, timid man who would not punch his wife for real. Uh, I <laughs> so, still like in in in. I just think like in by comedy standards. Uh, I just uh, never want my protagonist to uh, barge into his house and immediately start yelling at his wife. <laughs> That's just not. It's just not anything that I ever wanted to hear. And I don't. And I think John Goodman, because John Goodman is a bear of a man. Yeah. It, Which it, is only emphasized by his right-hand man in this being Barney Rubble, played by Rick Moranis. Now, in the cartoon... Rick Moranis, best performance in the movie. Rick Moranis is like, is I good. think he's most calibrated into... He's the only one, I think, who strikes the balance. I think like Elizabeth the, I, I think Elizabeth Perkins does a really good job with very limited she, things. She loses, the, that, she loses the voice. She like can't figure out quite what the voice is, I think. Yeah, and I, I will definitely join... 
um, angry nerds from the 90s and say that definitely my biggest problem with Rosie O'Donnell is that when I used to watch the Flintstones as a cartoon, I wanted to fuck that cartoon character. (laughs) And unfortunately, when they made it into a real life movie, I no longer wanted to fuck that real life person. Mm -hmm. And so as such, as a uh, angry nerd, I uh, fucking hated this movie. Because how dare (laughs) you give me someone who I wanted to fuck as a cartoon character, but now um, I don't want to fuck. I don't think that I don't think I particularly believe in kink shaming, but uh, there's one kink I will shame, and that's um, uh, uh, people who are horny for video game and cartoon characters. Uh, <laughs> well, and also like determine like if you put on an island. Yeah, like Rosie O'Donnell's great. Like we've talked about how much we like her. She's great, and like she's they don't give her much to work with in this movie, and she has some terrible dialogue that she tries her best with. Like she's not particularly good in this movie. Um, and she was on the same track as most of these 90s comedians where, like, yeah. they were super funny for a period of time and then they became TV mainstays and stopped being funny. And so now we only know annoying older Rosie who doesn't believe 9-11 happened. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. we liked her when she hated Donald Trump and and then the, the oh, you don't think 9-11 happened gets a little weird. Um but I, I she also stopped being funny too. Look, so it was like this combination of like it's the same. It's the same thing. All these like these guys, these these like nineties like Tim Allen whatever types, where it's like you were really you were really funny for your your hot moment, and then you became a, a, a family staple. And then I mean, I used to really I used to watch her point. talk show anytime I was sick. I really liked it. Um, I when the Rosie O'Donnell show. Like sorry, uh, like a can you give me like a five year window it was like nine i want to say like 96 to 2000 yeah yeah i i remember i remember my mom saying she really liked that I, I i it was you know one of those things like when i was sick from school or or during the summer i guess like it was something i would like watch when i could and i always i always really enjoyed it. i always thought she was very funny i mean i was you know uh it, it was designed to be a one o'clock in the afternoon like syndicated talk show um but it, you know i i did um, I did really enjoy it. I remember, she had a huge crush on Tom Cruise. Uh, that's a very important part to that show. Um, <laughs> definitely has held up well on a variety of levels. Uh, but I'm glad, you know, look, ultimately, I am glad that we've moved on from 1994 where a bunch of angry nerds were annoyed that the cartoon character that they imagined fucking as a real person didn't turn out exactly <laughs> how they wanted. And we don't have situations where, I don't know, someone makes a new She-Ra and a bunch of people go on Twitter going, I don't want to fuck this She-Ra. <laughs> Um, so i'm glad that we have evolved much from 1990 like (sighs) reality is very depressing and it's very sad what's your history with flintstones (laughs) not quite as depressing as aaron's um i did not watch the flintstones as a kid so like i have little to no memory of the cartoons i'm not sure if i had seen many of them prior to the movie I do recall seeing the movie and nothing other than seeing it. So presumably it didn't leave a lasting impact on me. Um. <laughs> in in fairness to Bill, for those eagle-eared viewers that remember a, an episode that we released in January, uh, and we mentioned this, Bill just was on our January episode that we recorded, and now we are moving on to recording this. And so we figured he was here. Why not ask him to be on this? So, if you're wondering why is Bill on, 
when he doesn't know the Flintstones and barely remembers this movie, we like Bill, and he was already hanging around. Yeah, well, uh, but we have a mix of experiences. I think yeah. Bill has almost no prior uh, exposure to the Flintstones. Uh, I have moderate exposure, and it sounds like uh, Aaron, you watched a bunch of the cartoons. So. I mean, kind. Of, I mean, like, when I was, I, also, I don't have. Like, I haven't mentioned my position on the remake yet so or the you know made for movie what we watched so if you guys need me to take a certain position i can be influenced on how i felt about this i mean you did text us during it after we said do you want to watch this we're going to record an episode on it and you made it very clear that this was not very good <laughs> but you, you were the, you watched it like you watched it before all of us you you were like sure i'll be on and then you started the movie eight minutes later yeah yeah, pretty much. It's what I did. I was like, oh, my Zoom, my iPad all day is on a Zoom call or a movie. Like, I can't have silence. That's just not healthy. Um, so, you know, I, I, what else am I going to do besides watch that? And I probably would have watched it many more times to be prepared, but this was particularly difficult for me to get through. Yeah, you're fine. Uh, one, once is enough. Uh, I think we're, I think we're all on team once is enough. Well, so, I mean, I, when I saw it with my parents, um, and they grew like they, you know, the Flintstones was on for six years. I think it's 1960 and 1966. My parents were born in the mid fifties, right? Like they were mid to late fifties, like 57, 58. Um, I know. Right. Um, they, uh. You know, they, they grew up watching this. They they love the show. I, I think this may have been a primetime show, not a Saturday morning show. This was a primetime show. This is the first primetime animated show on television. And it, it took it took the honor whatever thirty years before The Simpsons. Yeah, and so, you know, it has a it, the show has a laugh track. Like it's a cartoon show that was potentially one of the jokes or just like they didn't know how to put a TV show on primetime without a laugh track. So it's a little weird like the Jetsons and other things didn't have a laugh track that Hanna-Barbera did but this one did. Um, And I remember you know the first 30 minutes of this movie are very much a we're not going to really let the plot for the most part kick in but we're going to show all the shit that you saw as a uh, as a, on the cartoon in in how we've done this like very attention to detail amazing recreation of the the aesthetic and the sets and everything else that comes with the Flintstones. So if you've never seen the Flintstones, their whole bit is that it's an entire world. It's a modern world populated by prehistoric things. So they're a modern Stone Age family. Yeah, exactly. They have a garbage disposal, but it's which uh, I would assume most actual Stone Age families did not have, but because they don't have electricity, it's like a, a fucking pig that eats their garbage. And that was that was the uh, most of the sight gags on the show. That's where most of the comedy on the television show comes from, is the fact that it's like, we have to get a new like baby monitor, and it's like a monkey that shouts at them when the baby wakes up or something. And that's like... I mean, that's what the Flintstones was. So you see that world. You see all the things. You see some really nice, like, animatronic dinosaurs and some not-so-nice no, not um, CGI. Uh, they did not uh, put the same level fucking of, of Dino ca- and that cat. What's the cat's name? That's just a saber-tooth tiger. I'm not, um, I'm not entirely sure if it has a name. Yeah, um, whatever. Their dog and their cat are both fucking uh, genuine low points in this movie. Yeah, I mean, they didn't take, uh, even though Steel, Steven Spielrock produced, they didn't have Steven Spielberg CGI 
chop. So uh, it's the it's the non union Stone Age equivalent um, of of Steven Spielberg. Uh, so that so I remember like seeing this with my parents, and they like those those first twenty minutes of this movie are just like let's show all these things. You have someone mowing their lawn with a fucking scorpion. I don't know I don't know how Stone Age that is, but like a, one of those giant prehistoric insects. They show like a plane flying that's a pterodactyl. Um, you know, they just are going through all of those sight gags um, of what what a modern Stone Age family, what that looks like with the technology that they have. And I think that's the part like my parents really liked. And I, even watching it, you know, today, it is it's you know, it's 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 impressive from a special effects, from a set design, from a costume design, from a, like a production value. Like they, much like how the Grinch stole Christmas, which we covered six months ago, also with Bill, they put a pornographic level of detail into making sure that this was the Flintstones in the same way that was the Dr. Seuss book. I think the problem is, is that since the whole show is basically a honeymooners riff with, those types of of sight gags um and wasn't that like funny or good beyond that in the way a lot of like 60s sitcoms were weren't i guess i should say um this movie really has nothing else to work with once you get past that and as such which we'll talk about here in a second they the plot they have to come up with it's not like the genius of the Brady Bunch, and I, I hate to jump ahead to that, is that it takes all of the most famous Brady Bunch plots and it fits them into these 90-minute movies, right? Like all the things that you probably are just aware of, whether you watch the Brady Bunch over and over, uh, you know, uh, Peter's voice changing, Marsha getting her nose broke by the, by the football and like all these different things and works them into this grab bag mix. Like – What's the Flintstones episode that has worked its way into the mainstream? There's not one. And the couple ones I can remember is like basically like, you know, uh, Fred Flintstone uh, tries to go bowling and gets hurt and almost misses the big tournament or something like that. But there's not anything even iconic necessarily to pull from from a plot perspective, even though it was on for, you know, hundreds of episodes. And so they graft on this like weird like – uh, divide between friendships and rich stuff and weird like bureaucratic like mid- like what what it's like to not have money and your mother-in-law hates you in your middle age and like none of that is pulling from the show and that's not necessarily bad it's just it's like okay well we've showed all this prehistoric stuff that's the Flintstones basically so what do we do for the next 70 minutes? Yeah, you're right. It leads with – it gets its best foot forward. So the set design, um, you compared it to The Grinch. I think that's true. I have another comparison to make to it, and that's um, David Lynch's Dune, um, <laughs> which are – I think um, – you know, it has in common with the Grinch is that it's it's completely like designed to the to to the the point of absurdity. Like every small detail is in there, um, <clears throat> similar to Dune, um, but uh, also similar to Dune. Um, it, it's actually aesthetically pleasing. Like I think yeah. the movie is gorgeous to look at. It's yeah. really well shot. It's shot by Dean Cundey, who shot my favorite movie, The Thing. Super well lit and like yeah. uh 
this bright sort of idealistic suburbs meets like a prehistoric desert kind of kind of way. Yeah. Um, it's the sets are gorgeous. They're kind of mid-century modern design, but meets a sort of rocky clunkiness. Um, so it has this sort of 60s, you know, uh, nostalgic feel. Um, and the yeah. sets feel like you could just walk around in them. Um and all the characters walk around barefoot. So I guess, uh, you know, uh, if you're not attracted to Rosie O'Donnell, but you have a foot fetish, you can maybe make something work with one of the other characters. Yeah, you think um, this is Tarantino's favorite movie of all time? <laughs> there, I read, I don't know if this, I don't know if this was, I couldn't read this anywhere except for like IMDb trivia, but I read that they didn't allow glass anywhere on set because everybody is walking around barefoot, which is, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um but you're right. Like, I think that they they absolutely nail it in the first 20 minutes or so. It's actually very, like, fun to look at, very pretty. And then as soon as they actually have to do anything with it or they have to really, like, establish who the characters are, uh, you realize that this is just this, like, hollowed out product of 35 writers. So, well, I, I, kind I, of. It's, it's one of those it's one of those weird things, right, where it did according to what I could find is that once Brian Levitt, like this had been tried to be made a movie. That's a weird way to phrase that. Sentence, yeah. I, I can run through the, yeah, run, run, run through, through it. Yeah. it. So there's 35 credit, 32 to 35 writers touch this thing. And, and it doesn't mean that 35 people contributed to the final script. Um, Cause they tried to make this for nine years before it got. Yes. Made. Yeah. So it began with uh, producer, Joel Silver, who we, you know, from fucking everything. Um, and uh, notably Die Hard, uh, the screenwriter of Die Hard, D'Souza. Um, Richard Donner was set to direct, which is pretty cool. Um, Richard Donner and Joel Silver did a bunch together, including Lethal Weapon. And Jim Belushi as Fred, which might could have worked, could have not worked. Obviously, John Goodman is way more likable than Fred. If they had this, if they had a script similar to this and they had Fred, I imagine it would be even more unlikable because I, <laughs> Jim Belushi just has, I think, a, a more unpleasant energy. Um, so Donner oversaw a change out of eight writers and five different scripts before he got the fuck out of there. Then Amblin came in, Spielberg, Brian Levant, and then that's when they said John Goodman has to be the guy. And Brian Levant, the director, had just made uh, Beethoven, and it was yeah. a big hit. So his filmography, really quickly, Problem Child 2. <laughs> Not the first Problem Child. <laughs> Problem Child 2. Jingle All the Way. Christmas Story 2, which I imagine has to be one of the most depressing things to watch, right? I'm sure, yeah. He made Are We Are Are We There Yet, which made good money and kicked off a franchise. Um, and then Aaron. I know. He made Max 2. What is it? White Dog Down or whatever. Yeah. Look, I'm never going to watch White House Max. Dogs. I'm never going to fucking watch Max Wait, 2. But there's the a sequel? Look. I didn't know there was a sequel until I was looking at this dude's filmography this morning. <laughs> and apparently Aaron's least favorite movie of all time has a sequel. It's not the worst movie of all time. <laughs> But <laughs> that's expelled. No intelligence allowed. Um, but uh, I do fucking hate Max uh, as well, as I've talked about now many times on this show. <laughs> but uh, Max, the cover makes it look like a gritty 
dog war movie and max 2 looks like it's fucking an airbud sequel so i imagine that all of the uh joyful fun you get in the original max like thomas hayden church uh pointing a gun at a dog's head and saying you killed my son is not <laughs> present in max 2 white dog down he also made uh snow dogs so that was there's snow buddies and there's snow dogs and snow dogs i imagine has a much lower body count than snow buddies uh well snow dogs is just uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. bobsled movie. So I bet that has a higher body count in the movie. <laughs> so uh, this movie uh, made uh, – sorry, yeah, let's go back through. So um, Brian Levant was brought in and everything and Spielberg was like, let's cut the shit. This is a blank, blank slate. Um, however, <laughs> um, <sighs> Uh, a guy named Gary Ross was hired to write a script, and then there was eight additional writers room guys brought in to work on the the the, the present iteration of the script. Um, and then there was more rejection from WGA because WGA was like, "We want to." Uh, sorry, then more rejection from the studio, um, and they went through four more rounds, each round adding more writers. That's why we don't know if it's th- somewhere between 32 and 35 people worked on this yeah. thing, right? Um, and then the WGA really wanted it to be down to three writers at the time. And Universal tried to submit it with nine writers attached to the story credit, I believe. Yeah. Um, which is fucking hilarious. Uh, there's standees in theaters that have like a r- story by <laughs> and it's like multiple lines. Um and then WGA eventually got them to re uh, sent them back to arbitration. They got them down to two or three guys. And now the WGA it actually caused the the, the Writers Guild to make uh, a change to uh, essentially it, the rule is is that you, you try and get the writers that most contributed to the script and can now have some evidence to that. That's why writers and their agents are so keen to like document what they worked on yeah. um, so that, that if they have to go to arbitration with the WGA they can say hey I, I wrote here's a draft I wrote two years ago and it has 90% of the lines from the production script yeah. I wrote I deserve credit and then the guy will say oh yeah you know I guess he, I have some overlap with his work but I wrote these 10% and they cobble together some sort of writing credit um, so that's how they got the story that 35 screenwriters came in and the joke at the time because I was reading articles from 94 and Variety and New York Times and stuff the joke at the time is 35 screenwriters and not a single good joke in the movie and while that is uh a little reductive um 35 screenwriters and there's no there's there's maybe there's maybe two or three light chuckles in a 90 minute movie which i'd like you to explain you compa- what those chuckles are but because- if you compare it if you compare it to if you compare this fucker to, which made $340 million internationally, this yeah. was a huge hit. Made, made about Le- $150 uh, domestically, yeah. And Bryant Levant went on to, so much so that six years later, Brian Levant went on to make Vivo Rock Vegas with a completely uh, redone cast, and it's a prequel. It's a prequel. Um, yeah. And uh, I watched a little bit of that. Maybe we'll get into that later, but. Um, yeah, that this movie, this movie has like almost no good, has almost no good jokes. Um, and the only times I laughed were essentially like small character moments with 
Barney and Fred because Rick Moranis is so goddamn charming that he has this like uh, <laughs> this like bubble of charm around him, and sometimes other people get the the benefits of that. It's like a healing, it's like a <laughs> yeah. healing uh, cloud in like an RPG game or a Diablo game. Yeah, this is this is right before he re- like he retires, you know, three years after this movie, and this is where we really start doing Rick Moranis dirty. Like, honey, I blew up the kid, the Flintstones. Uh, we we really we really sent him out with a with a middle finger. Um, but I well, I think part of the reason there's no jokes is like the joke. Uh, not to keep harping on this, the joke of the Flintstones was, let's just do a Honeymooners type episode, or a Leave it to Beaver type episode, or whatever it is, and the joke in the 20 minute episode is that when they have to call someone on the phone, it's a pterodactyl. Like, that... (laughs) That is the like that is the joke of the show. There wasn't there was the normal like honeymooners type like we got ourselves into a mess. We lied to our wives, which like it's not comedy that has stood the test of time. But the way the Flintstones did it was that you know yeah it's 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 they're living it just is it's it's a it's a, a fine replace. It reminds me of Peter. Do you remember? Um, <laughs> uh, Team America. Well, you, I know you remember Team America: World Police, but how that started as they uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone uh, thought it would be funny to do. Uh, they saw the day after tomorrow and thought it was the worst movie of all time, uh, and they thought it would be funny to do the day after tomorrow the entire script. Word for word, bit by bit, no changes. But what if we just do it with marionettes and puppets, like in that level of special <laughs> effects? And that's that. That was the genesis of that movie. And they realized very quickly that that would be funny for five minutes, and then people would lose interest. Like you, it's a it's a funny. Like at this point, this is before you. I mean, Team America is actually before YouTube because I think YouTube launched in two thousand five. Like that would be a funny YouTube sketch. It's not. It doesn't sustain a movie. And I think the problem with the Flintstones is that its entire premise is that. It's let's do this under ridiculous circumstances, which sustained well for a weekly 20-minute show uh, against fucking Green Acres or whatever else was on at the time, right? Or Mr. Ed, where they kill the horse. Yeah. Um, The horse has a peanut allergy, famously, but they they just kept putting peanut butter in his mouth to make him do that thing. It's a new horse every week. His throat would close up. Yeah, his throat would close up and he would die. But, you know, there's a lot of horses, so it was super easy to find replacements every week. I don't know. Do your kids like doing craft projects, Aaron and Bill? And don't complain about the horse deaths. Let's talk about paste. Oh, yeah. No, they only use rubber cement. <laughs> um, Don't but, mind the fadoo. But, right, like, that's the problem is that the Flintstones wasn't a good show. And the the, the show was about sight gags in, um, in, in imagining a prehistoric world that modern people were living in. And that is the show – the second it realizes that it can't just keep showing these people and needs to hit a plot – it doesn't it doesn't have a plot to do and i mm-hmm. and again i do think like there is a world and i you know like a lord and miller type thing that can probably take that premise like they took 21 jump street like they you know famously just keep taking bad ideas and making good properties and movies out of them 
Like they got to the point where people are like, "Have you seen the Lego Batman movie?" And <laughs> yeah. I'm like, "No, do I have to?" And they're like, "Yeah, it's great. <laughs> Those guys got this franchise on track." Yeah, but it it, like, it they, is they, that they, like their their goodness extends outward. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not saying that like something good and original couldn't be done with the premise, but I get why this movie pulls the same trick. The movie's whole thing is we're going to do that, except we're going to do it with $65 million and Steven Spielrock behind us. And, and that does make the first 20 minutes of this where they're kind of just going through all of that stuff. It's not funny, but it's interesting to watch. And you like are – are impressed into this day like this especially because it was uh, they only use cgi for for some stuff um you know the the effect of like the fucking giant practical brontosaurus that you know fred flintstone is using to mine at the beginning and stuff like that is great like it looks amazing and the rock quarry looks amazing and the car stuff and the their houses and all like it all looks really good but it just that was you're you're no longer seeing that stuff from a comedy aspect, which is what the show is about. Instead, you're seeing it from a special effects, which I think even sustains less because you're not marveling at the 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 humorousness of what you're seeing. You're marveling at the effects, and just like anything, like how 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 many times do you go on that roller coaster before it's not exciting anymore i guess like so yeah. i don't know i think this is actually a good time to transition into the plot because we've been saying like it looks good it's fun to watch 20 minutes of this would have been perfect uh if they would have done this as like yeah like an abc special flintstones episode done in live action i think this would be fondly remembered because or just build these sets and then give it to the people who made the show dinosaurs uh yeah I mean, dinosaurs <laughs> does the same thing, right? It's like, what if yeah, we did dinosaurs Simpsons? Dinosaurs isn't as nice looking as this, but yeah, it's the same thing. What if we did Simpsons episodes <laughs> with dinosaurs is essentially uh, dinosaurs' is riff. Um, another show that I liked I liked quite a bit when it aired that uh, doesn't hold up very well. Um, but with that, Bill, if you're still with us, and Peter, are you guys ready <laughs> to talk more about... Uh, Steven Spielrock's The Flintstones. Sure thing, Aaron. Let's rock. Peter, you are alternate taglines. Uh, sure am. Wow. I just, I have so many good ones. It's hard to tell, you know, do I do the best ones first or the worst ones first, you know? Um, I would start uh, with the best and see if we have the appetite for for more. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, no, I, guess, I think what would be a good one is, like, what's more degrading? This being Elizabeth Taylor's last movie role or uh, Orson Welles in the Transformers movie? <laughs> <laughs> You, you will believe. You will see a falling star. Uh, yeah. Well, the best part of this movie is like, come see the mini B fifty twos concert. They're the BC fifty twos, which is apparently a futuristic band. Uh, well, I guess it implies that at some point Christ will be born in the Flintstones. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, Jesus, I mean, show, Jesus they, Christ. They used the term 10,000 BC on the show, right? They, yeah. They, um, we didn't talk about this, but we watched a cigarette ad with the <laughs> Flintstones for, for Winston cigarettes. And um, the ones, uh, they just would have a sponsor. So the, the ad is the whole two minute break or whatever. It's amazing. It's amazing because it's a full. Yeah, you're right. It's a, it's so long because we're used to these 15 or 30 second commercials. But they used to have it like sponsored by Winston cigarettes. And then the whole commercial would just be yes. for Winston cigarettes. Yeah. That's I was great. watching an old I was watching an old Munsters or Adams family a few years ago and I saw this too. Like this is this was super common until 1970 and, and there was some sort of act passed to stop this. Um but yeah. Um the the in this in the Winston cigarette ad there's a uh, a joke that's funnier than any joke in this movie where uh uh Wilma and Betty are uh fucking uh working hard in the yard and Barney and uh Barney and Fred are of course being a, a lazy layabouts um and they uh they go oh it's hard to watch it's hard to watch the ladies work this this hard and he's like all right so let's go by the house so we don't have to watch them <laughs> and then they just take a cigarette break and that made me laugh harder than anything in a 90 minute movie made in the 90s at a time when they were making these adaptations like a little edgier like adam's family values is like arguably 70 percent of the jokes are not for kids yeah but those were rated pg-13 like those even the brady bunch movies are rated pg-13 like they are very much like not they're not technically for kids by definition right like you should be 13 or because they they are a lot of sex jokes uh brady bunch especially about how they like they're in a very sex-filled 90s and they are very sexless human beings um and uh yeah well thankfully and you know as i get into the recap here this movie recognizes its cigarette past because in the first five minutes of the movie is halle berry lighting a giant cigarette (laughs) and smoking Uh, it i was hoping you would remember this uh yeah it is that was so like in a movie that i remembered being uncomfortable and like I actually feel like there's a lot of movies in the 90s that like were for kids, but like all the adult screenwriters didn't understand how to write movies for kids. Like, and so we're like writing movies for adults for kids, and they were like, kids, uh, kids love this shit, right? Like, I, there's so many examples of this from the 90s when you watch kid movies and you're like, would kids even like. It's not about, like, is this appropriate for kids? It's like, do kids even understand what the fuck is happening here? Like, these are these are adult themes. Like, when, when something gets rated for something for adult themes, like uh, corporate embezzlement, like, why would a kid even understand that? That is too complicated. But regardless, the fact that 1994, when, like... 1994 is when you couldn't smoke in most places, minus, like, the smoking section of a restaurant. You couldn't smoke on airplanes. It was definitely very clear that smoking was bad, and they were starting to ban it from everything. The One of the first scenes of this fucking kid's movie is Halle Berry lighting a cigarette. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it's fantastic, because I think they're doing it to highlight her as a villain, but... Hey, one of the most attractive people that's ever yeah. existed is lighting a Chesterfield cigarette. And she's ultimately like kind of like a 
uh, in, in inverse femme fatale, where she like does the bad stuff to Fred immediately, and then as the movie goes on, she softens to him. So she's like, uh, <laughs> she's ultimately sort of an antihero in the movie. And it's Halle Berry smoking a cigarette. Like it's, it looks good. It looks fun. It makes you want a cigarette. This show sponsored by Winston Cigarettes. Tastes good, like a cigarette should. <laughs> actually prevents lung cancer i have to admit this is this is crazy i was walking by literally today i walked by someone smoking a cigarette in their car and and i could smell it through my mask and i was like that's fucking gross that smells so awful and then after that the winston cigarette ad i was like i could take up smoking (laughs) that that was my biggest problem with mad men like a couple other shows like Peaky Blinders it's like geez like why do I finish every episode wanting a cigarette (laughs) I do love that Onion article that's like local teen smokes cigarette like he's seen some shit more or something (laughs) I I always like the Onion one that's like um, teen hope secondhand smoke leads to secondhand coolness (laughs) Uh, but anyways, so this movie opens with Cliff Vandercave. Kind of a stone pun, but more of a vagina pun, but whatever. We'll uh, played, played by, by Ky- who? Kyle MacLachlan, which this was definitely my first Kyle MacLachlan thing. Um, uh, yeah, my, my parents uh, didn't just uh, drop some Twin, Pe- Twin Peaks bootleg VHSs on me when I was uh, four or whatever. No, I mean, it rules that he was in this movie. I just wish it was better. Um, but, he's uh, fun as the villain. Yeah, he is. Um, the script sucks. He's got he's good arms. I like his arms. If you like people's arms, this is the movie. <laughs> tell, tell me if I'm wrong here, Aaron. Um, Kyle McLaughlin had a face for a period of time where he could only play the young, beautiful, innocent. <clears throat> and then David Lynch saw that and he was like, I want you to do that, but I want to destroy that innocence at some point. I mean, that is almost like very specifically why David Lynch cast him in a bunch of stuff. Like, yeah, that's not that's not implication. He like basically said Uh, John Waters with Johnny Depp. Like Johnny Depp wanted to shake his like, I'm a I'm a teen star thing. And then John Waters was like, we'll help you with that. Yeah. And, And so like. I think there was a period of time where Kyle MacLachlan was like playing villains, like at least in this and in um, Showgirls, he plays like yeah. This, this is right villain. after that. Yeah, he does. Um, I mean, Kyle MacLachlan did was in some great stuff. Besides the Lynch stuff, there's The Hidden, which is one of my favorite '80s horror movies. He's great in Hidden. He's so good in Hidden, and he's he's doing a riff on his like blue velvet character which is really cool like Kamagakan and also he's just like he's yeah, a great Peaks character, he's a great sorta. TikTok follow he's a great Twitter follow he's I'm so glad of all the people that has turned out to be a non-problematic uh, king or whatever you want to call it uh, I'm glad he's one of those people I'm I'm him and Sam Neill both have yeah. vineyards and are just like apparently super fucking happy <laughs> it's yeah. kind of nice during covid to see someone just like well I'm stuck Look at home this but tomato I, yeah. I'm stuck at home, but I'm hanging out with my pet pig on my vineyard, and you're like, oh, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, so, anyways, uh, we won't come back to him. Probably will not. Well, who knows? Uh, he's in the plot, and I gotta go through the plot. So, yeah. So it starts with Kyle MacLachlan scheming with Halle Berry about we're gonna find a Patsy in like a weird film noir thing that it like isn't a riff they keep up, but it's the opening scene, and then they do another fake opening about. 
Uh, so the Flintstones, the TV show, the theme song, and it also had a different ending theme song was that they they load up their family into the car and then they go watch the Flintstones on on a movie screen. At the end, they uh, leave the theater and pick up some ribs and Fred gets locked out of the house. That was just like the opening and closing credits of the Flintstones. They do the same thing here, but it means you have like three cold opens because first you see Steven Spiel rock, you fly through um, – you fly through the universe um, and you see like a, a plesiosaurus in the water and you see an airplane that's a pterodactyl. And then it cuts to the opening scene with Kyle MacLachlan and Halle Berry scheming. And then it cuts to the movie theater screen and then it shows the movie. Um, it's very it's, – it's just too much at once. They're really like – but again, it's all built. Like it's like we're going to show you the Flintstones. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be realistic. And so I guess in that way, I get why they did like three intros to it um, before really diving. So yeah, Fred works with Barney. They work at a rock quarry, um, the, the Slade rock quarry. Uh, they're at work. Kyle McLaughlin comes out when they're at lunch and is like, we're going to hire a new VP executive. Um, we're going to, you got to take a test. Whoever the smartest person is <laughs> on the test, on the aptitude test gets to be an executive. Um, you meet Wilma, you meet, um, uh, Barney, <laughs> who cares about it? You meet Betty, Betty and Barney, uh, adopt their kid with money from Fred. They get Bam Bam, who was raised by Wooly Mammoths, I think, or Sabertooth Tigers. It's a good fam. Yeah, so Pebbles is also already in the movie. They already have their kid. I don't know if they fucked to get their kid or if they also paid for Pebbles. It's unclear. Maybe it's like a stork situation in the Flintstone world where... They just have wild kids they give to people. But regardless, and Barney's like, Barney didn't have the money for it. Fred emptied his savings. Wilma's psyched about that. You did such a good thing for a friend. But Barney's looking for a way to pay back Fred at some point. There's also Elizabeth Taylor as Wilma's mother who fucking hates Fred. Um, and that's tough, you know, as kids can relate to. There's nothing worse than a mother-in-law who just berates you in front of your children. And, <laughs> and uh Yeah. I mean, I kids assume the kids it. watching this are, are in the Pebbles uh, frame of reference. That's their point of view character of what it's like to just see their grandma just just make their dad eat shit <laughs> for no reason. But uh, yeah, uh, she says he's drunk as a skunkosaurus. That's a big part of this movie. Um, and it's important that kids see that, I guess. Um, so anyways, so they take the test and Fred is like, I'm going to make something of myself, which again, never a thing. He was always happy at the rock quarry, but he decides that in order to uh, not have his mother-in-law verbally degrade him in front of his child and his wife and his friends, that I guess he needs to become rich. So uh, he's like, I'm going to become this vice president. Um, And as he's taking the test, he studies for it. He gets all excited about it. Barney recognizes because – that he's having trouble because he's like sweating profusely and Barney's a smart guy. He takes the test. He thinks it was pretty easy. He switches the test. Now here's where the 35 writers made a pretty big logic hole that permeates the entire movie and infuriated me upon this watch. So the whole point is they're looking for a fucking Patsy 
who is dumb and they're super excited when they pick Fred Flintstone because he's dumber than they expected and they're able to manipulate him and do all the stuff. Essentially uh, making it seem like he's uh, embezzling funds for this new way to make stone so they can fire everybody while Kyle McLaughlin gets rich and takes the heat off of him for firing the entire staff um, of the. Of it's very complicated. I didn't understand it when I was. A yeah. Kid. Yeah. So, but the whole point is they want a dumb motherfucker to pin it on. Now, Fred got the job because Barney switched tests. Barney is the smart one who aced the test. And that test is what they pick. So, they, you would think that the plot of this movie would be they picked Fred because he had the lowest test score. And they want the dumbest person in the quarry to pin all their crimes on. Instead, they try or to... Or Barney pick- ends up going through the plot Fred does. Yeah, but instead... Yeah, that would have made way more sense with everything else going on. But instead, apparently they wanted the smartest person in the quarry because they cared about the integrity of the test. <laughs> because the other plot... Like, what the fuck? Like, it makes no sense why they picked Barney's test. Because that was the – like, the second even Fred, big dumb Fred, gets close to, like, catching him, that's when they give him a bunch of money to spend. They're like, you're an executive now. You got to show that you're successful because even as he starts to recognize that he's signing a bunch of contracts he doesn't understand, he starts catching on. Barney would have never done that in that situation, but that's who they wanted. And on top of that, they make him fire Barney, who had the lowest test score, which was Fred's test score, because they don't want a dumb fuck working in the stone quarry. Like, it is like... Oh, that one is a loyalty test. That's uh, that's them. That's uh, that uh, that's basically saying. But like, no, but they well, they're firing season. a friend, sure. But but they're also firing the lowest scoring person who just happens to be his best friend. I just like I agree with you. Fred should like Barney should have been the person who like got the job or like at least that would have been somewhat interesting because it just. It doesn't make sense that they would pick the smartest person for this job that they want. And Fred's to be. already a blowhard, and Fred already is like a showboat and a blowhard. So like him becoming a bigger showboat and a blowhard isn't dramatically interesting. I read somewhere that they actually this is kind of riffing on a plot they did in uh, an episode of the show, but Barney was the one who got the big job, and Barney started acting, which makes so yeah. much more sense that he they it picked makes the dumb one. And also, like Barney's sweet, so seeing like the contrast between like Barney being a sweetie and sort yeah. of like he's he, he's more of like um he's more of an innocent than Fred in a sense. Like he's more of like a all right, Fred, whatever you say. Yeah. Like um, whereas Fred's like Barney. Yeah. He just kind of goes along and he's in debt to him. So like I hate to like I'm I'm not trying to do like a fucking look at this plot hole, but. It is the pivotal thing of the movie that happens, and it makes no goddamn sense for the movie's terms. Um, So, it is very perplexing on every level. But anyways, so Fred, also, they they give him a desk and they call out one of his uh, gadgets, which is a dictaphone. Which records every – it's a bird that just records everything like a recorder. That doesn't really work either because what they should have done is figured out some sort of a cute computer equivalent because like 
there's not a version of when you get a corporate job they give you a tape recorder that records all the time. Like that's not a thing. So you don't need to give us the prehistoric version, but it's like very clearly like it's gonna record some shit and say it later. Uh which is what it does. Like they're like, this is addictive. It records everything to be said later. It's its only purpose. Like, it's not even used in a clever way. And the villains forget about it. And well, never mind. I don't know why I'm. Okay. So, anyways, so they execute their plan. And this is just so frustrating. Like, it's like 35 writers, and you're like, I don't know. What if we have a bird that repeats everything? Okay. Well, won't people not say stuff in front of the bird that its only purpose is to record everything that everyone says and then repeat it back? And they're like, yeah, I don't know. It's- this is this is that's the thing. This is a this is a uh, incredibly simple movie for children, and yet for some reason it like ha- lacks any elegance whatsoever. Yeah. And, and and then the, the, so it means that there's absolutely there's almost no once the plot finally comes together, which you're getting to, like there's no real dramatic no like. There's no real uh, dramatic suspense about whether or not the plot will be resolved. There's just sort <laughs> yeah. of this incredibly obvious solution sitting in front of everyone's face, and you're just waiting for one of these fucking dummies to come up with it. <laughs> yeah, I know. So anyway, so Fred gets super rich, right? And that that drives a wedge between him and Barney, who he's now fired, which at first Barney's like, I understand you had to do it, because uh, he knows that he switched tests. But then eventually Fred being an asshole about money to him and it's like hey kids you know what it's like when the your lifelong friend and you have different uh you, there's an economic disparity that develops as you grow up you know can, can you relate to that children um but like that's a it's just so dumb but like the it's not like a bad plot idea just in the ether right like one of my favorite friends episodes and i know peter you're not a huge fan of friends but, like, the whole thing about Friends is that there's people on that show that are, like, successful, like uh, Matthew Perry Chandler's character. <laughs> uh, that was a weird way to say that. Um, you know, has a good corporate job and fucking, you know, Ross is a doctor and stuff like that. And Monica's, like, a successful chef at a restaurant. And then the other three people's, like, you know, Rachel's a coffee waitress and Phoebe's uh, does odd jobs here and there. And Joey's a struggling actor. And they do a really interesting, like, for a sitcom show of, like, all of them going out to dinner to celebrate something and just kind of recognizing there's a huge economic disparity between everyone and how awkward that is when like you know they're ordering fancy meals and stuff like that and like hey you know I'm your friend you see me every day you know I'm struggling to even pay your rent like that that's an interesting concept it doesn't work in a fucking Flintstones movie for children anyway um, getting off that uh, so they become enemies, whatever, and then it's on the news that Fred fired everyone in the quarry because he signed all the paperwork. So everyone in the town wants to kill him, and also he embezzled a bunch of money. Um, <laughs> so he goes on the run and hides. Um, kind of hides. He puts on a fake beard and hangs out with Jonathan Winters. Here's the other thing really quickly because we'll, we won't get back to it. So one thing we're definitely going to talk about in the next two movies and we probably talked about in the Adams family is that one of the things that all of these fucking movies do is they um 
they have guest stars or they have like uh, cameos in the movie of people that were in the original shows, right? Yeah, so, they have Hannah and Barbara in it, I think. Well, but so they do that, but like you know, like when the, in the Brady Bunch movie at the end, Grandma and it's Florence Henderson, and like half of the cast is in the movie, right? And that's the true of Beverly Hillbillies. They're these little cameo bit parts. It's true of Adam's family. Um, you know, whoever's alive, whoever's willing to come do it. Uh, has like little moments in it. The problem with the Flintstones is that there wasn't cameos in the movie. So I do think what they what they do instead is they have uh, legends of the era that the Flintstones aired come and do the cameos. So you have Elizabeth Taylor as the mother in law. You have Jonathan Winters as the lead hobo, um, which is like just a. I feel like that's what they're doing. Like, let's get other 60s stars in our 60s adaptation. But it doesn't have the same connection that these other ones ultimately end up having. Anyway. When Jonathan Winters came in, I was like, uh, for a second, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Because he has a similar sort of vibe to Jackie Gleason. And yeah. It's, 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 yeah, it, there's not really a whole lot to track there except for they wanted cameos from people that would have been extremely relevant in the 60s yeah it's like the same thing that these other movies do but they couldn't do it because it was the flintstones so they like they choose a a different path that i guess it's there to like in the same way that my parents were like look look how crazy this looks we used to watch this as a kid and now this looks real to go jonathan winters we loved him too like it's but it's unconnected to the flintstones it's just it's odd uh, so, anyways, blah blah blah. Uh, Barney uh, confess. You know, there's a there's a fight at some point. This is a little bit earlier, where that uh, Fred just won because of the task. Fred eventually like comes clean, and they're like, "How could we prove this?" And they're like, "That dictaphone that records everything." And of course. Uh, meanwhile, Kyle McLaughlin steals the kids, Pebbles and Bam Bam, just to remind them that they're in this movie. And then they go to defeat him, which they do, and accidentally invent concrete. And then Fred Flintstone gets an actual promotion, like, hey, you just invented concrete. That's going to be good for us. And he's like, all I want is to form a union, <laughs> <laughs> which which is good. But I think he could have done more than two weeks of PTO, to be honest, uh, especially based on the fact that they live to 38. Like, give him a little more vacation. Um uh yeah there's a whole there's a whole thing with um the ripe old age of 38 yeah yeah my old man uh, ate red meat every day of his life and lived to the ripe old age of 38 yeah so ma- more than 2 weeks of PTO would have been a good ask i think in general for him and then the other thing is Halle Berry is like again it would have fe- been good for him yeah a, f- a femme fatale and she is whenever Fred Flintstone tra- kind of gets wise to what's going on. She uh, pretends like she's gonna fuck him, and that goes over poorly with his wife. One day when she walks, <laughs> his into wife the does not like to think about his, her husband getting fucked by Halle Berry. I mean, but like it's not subtle. Like, she literally, like I said, she literally, like, fucking stripper legs <laughs> around his crotch and is like, yeah, use me as much as you want. And, like, uh, yeah, I'm sure a lot of parents were surprised by that. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of parents had some thoughts back then. You know, it's tough, um, too, because, like, I, like, obviously. Bonnie, I, you should have seen me. 
I was fully engorged. <laughs> uh, would you say that uh, you were rock hard? Oh. Bonnie. I was hard as a rock. It's incredibly oh, odd, Oh, jeez, right? Fred. That sounds pretty difficult to not fuck your secretary. <laughs> oh, I know, Bon. It is. <laughs> I wish I had a secretary not to fuck. <laughs> but I don't know. Work at a gas station. <laughs> uh, also, there's one other cameo that doesn't belong anywhere. Uh, friend of the show, Jay Leno. He's in this movie. Uh, yeah. Uh, Bedrock's Most Wanted host. Yeah. It's like, you I seen this? Like a, you seen this? Expect- you heard about this? I was expecting, like, uh, the stalactite show or something. Stumpthonite show. Yeah, are you um, trying to say, like, what would have been smart is instead of him hosting Bedrock's Most Wanted, he hosted, like, a late night show where they made fun of the fact that this guy uh, fired everyone. Like, like, like riffing on the news, like, in a monologue type style. Yeah, or or they uh, didn't get Jay Leno in the movie at all, and they could avoid this this uh, the whole problem of having to write a joke. Yeah, but I'm power mad. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping that Collision Course could be our you know religious, and we could you know rid ourselves of ever having to talk about Jay. Yeah, Leno Yeah, but he's again. in the movie, Peter. He's in the movie. He's in the you know, movie. In this- hey, uh, hey, have you seen this? Have you heard about this? Uh, Jay Leno's in the Flintstones movies. <laughs> Here about this, here about this. I'm in, I'm in the, I'm in the Flintstones movie. movie. I'm in the Flintstones. I could have played Fred. Get over here, yeah, Wilma. I'll punch you. This guy's a fucking Neanderthal. He's dumb as shit. What's my wife's name again in real life? I'm gonna. Now that I saw the Flintstones, I'm gonna act like Fred. I'm gonna. Uh, if you don't get me eight more cards by tomorrow, I'm gonna punch you in the face, Mabel. <laughs> Give me those cards, Mabel. Give me the Flintstone cars. <laughs> Wait, do you remember the part where he, they say he's driving a uh, Le Sabretooth is the name of the car? I don't care if they don't make them. I'm Jay fucking Leno. <laughs> Go fucking make them. I you, got so much fucking money. You, but I never touch. You know what I never touch? I never touch my Bedrock's most wanted money. <laughs> not even for the Flintstone cars do I not touch my Bedrock's most wanted money. <laughs> Oh, oh, we we don't have fun. And my plan is complete to destroy America. Everyone hates me because I'm a conceited, rich asshole who has too much money for my own good. Anyway, <laughs> half of my new show is about my cars. <laughs> I never touch my, uh, my money that's used to bankroll the destruction of the United States. <laughs> That's because it's specifically earmarked for the destruction of the United States. <laughs> United States. States. You know what? Once the United States is gone, it's a lot of land for me to drive my cars through. <laughs> <laughs> I-, I love the you idea of like... Road. The millions of dead... <laughs> I w- I've never ran over a body, but I like those death race movies. You know why? Cars. <laughs> They're filled with cars. <laughs> uh, hey, uh, you know what my favorite Pixar movie is? <laughs> Up. Because that's where I'm going. Right to the top, baby. <laughs> I'm going to be king of America. Look at me, Jay Leno. You think I'm God? You think you can cancel my show? I am become Jay, destroyer of worlds. 
Uh, hey, Aaron, are you getting sick? My wife says to me in the morning, I know your voice is a little sore. Oh, sorry, you know, on that Flintstones episode? Yeah, I screamed like Jay Leno for 20 minutes. Uh, well, that's <laughs> not even an impression. It's just, it's just like, uh, Clarence from Wonder Shows. Hey, 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 hey. No, my favorite part of this movie is? The part that I'm in. <laughs> Jay Leno. Is that a knife? <laughs> Mabel, no! Mabel! Mabel! You're gonna be my queen! I should have touched my Tonight Show money to get chain mail! Oh, I hope the guy that hated our Evil Dead episode only checks back in on our Flintstones episode. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I think I'll give them Another chance. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. I knew this was wrong once they acted like Steven Spielrock was a real person. <laughs> <laughs> actually, 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 I like, uh, I really, oh, there's one really good joke in the movie, and it's uh, entirely because of Rick Moranis. Um, it, the joke is, so uh, Fred's getting lynched, so that's where we were at, I think, before, doing uh, different jobs around town. I don't know why he has so many different jobs, other than... Like, it's funny that Barney I mean, is Barney's it, 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 unemployment is haunting Fred. <laughs> he's he's smart enough to be a VP of a company. You think he'd get a job in fucking Bedrock? <laughs> like they they're giving a fucking orangutan a job. Like it should yeah, be fine. I I don't I don't. Maybe get he's it. a maybe bad interviewer. Maybe they're in a rock session. <laughs> Also, I look, I, I know you got to get back to what you were saying, but I got to tell you, a whole system of money that's based on just rocks. They were like um, shells. It was weird. It feels like it could be easily counterfeit is all. Well, wait till you hear this. I hammered two rocks together until one of them looked like a dollar and then some asshole took it. Yeah, I mean, their whole quarry system is just very confusing to me. Like, it seems like they're just building houses. Yeah. I mean, Anyways, I the know. joke that made me laugh. Uh, Barney is a like a, a Italian ice guy, um, and uh, oh, they got to tell. Italian- oh, we don't have time for that. <laughs> <laughs> and he he pulls up and he's like in his Italian ice thing, and he sees uh, Fred is being hung from the neck until dead. You know the thing that children love to see in films. Um, <laughs> Fred Flintstone hung from the neck until dead. Barney's like, "What are you doing, Fred?" And Fred's like. I'm getting lynched, Bon. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Rick Moranis goes, well, I've got Cherry, Rocky Road. Like, there's a, a, a really good, it's not funny because I'm not Rick Moranis, but um, it, there's a very good, like, uh, uh, joke setup where you expect Barney to be really concerned, but at this point in the movie, they're kind of enemies. Um, and, so, and so, like, Barney not calling him an asshole, Barney just being, like, completely ignorant, apathetic to him is him being cruel. Yeah. Um, and, like, that joke, is like, landed really good for me. And then um, what you almost see in a children's movie is uh, Barney Rubble and Fred Flintstone. I can't put too fine a, a note on this. Um being lynched uh, from a tree uh, until dead. Yeah, I think that what's is important is that 1994 was the year of um, movies based on 
60s TV shows featuring their <laughs> protagonists getting lynched um, because uh, you make a great double feature with uh, Maverick, <laughs> which is also a 1994 movie that opens with Mel Gibson hanging from a tree. <laughs> wow. I completely forgot about that. Yeah. Um, we've covered on the we've show. Covered Maverick. Yeah. Maverick is a very good uh, adaptation of a television show that does the exact right thing, right? Like, it just takes the concept and does its own thing. Um, and it makes... It does the cameo thing, right? Like, the star of Maverick is uh, plays the father of Maverick. Uh, yeah. Its biggest mistake was um, hiring an abusive racist to be the, the lead star. This movie was so successful uh, financially, not critically, that they it absolutely guaranteed a sequel. Bill, did you know about this? You, you hear about this? You hear about this? Do you know they made a prequel sequel? Uh, was yeah, one of the guys from Mad TV? A pre-sequel. Wait, what? They actually physically made it, or <laughs> no? They just imagineered it. No, like <laughs> someone made it implied that they filmed. Yeah, it Brian as a Levin sequel. made it. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a prequel. It was made six years later. Alan Cumming plays the Great Gazoo. Um, in the first twenty minutes, I watched. Uh, they make the joke that everyone thinks his name is Kazoo instead of Gazoo. Three oh, that's times. That's great. Once every seven minutes, someone thinks this joke is worth worth bringing back. You know why that uh, joke is really, really good? Oh, why, Aaron? Well, because in the Stone Age, kazoos were a huge thing. So you Massive. can see why they would keep making that mistake. Yeah, it just makes sense. So, uh, who's the only cast member from this movie that's in Viva Rock Vegas? I don't know. It's Rosie O'Donnell not playing Wilma. Because hopefully those fucking nerds finally got a hot younger Wilma, but I or not Wilma, Betty. Um, oh no, she just does a voice of like one of the dinosaurs. <laughs> what an indignity! Why would she bother? Well, I, I, I think they're like we need some. Some cameo in here, you know, connected to the original that people... You can't even put that on the poster. No. SAG rules will not allow. Uh, anyway, so in the in that, um, it's it, I actually think that there's a couple casting improvements, though the script is even worse somehow. Um, Jane Krakowski is Betty, um, and she's pretty fun and, like, you know, a not very... Um, it's a pretty thankless uh, role. And uh, this guy, Mark Addy, who is in like the big Monty and stuff, yeah. like a, a real actor. He plays uh, Fred. And I think he he toes the line between sort of uh, this was a cartoon character. And also I need to make this like a believable character in a live action movie. I think he toes the line a lot better than John Goodman does, even though I think John Goodman is a far more naturally charismatic and charming actor. Um, what do you so think Stephen Mark Addy's better as in? Barney is fucking obviously a loss, like a, a, a insurmountable loss. He's fucking miserable in that movie and in life from. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's a he's a miserable dude. What do you think Mark Addy is better in? Is it this or the thin blue line? <laughs> well, did you know that Mark Addy was in the thin blue line? I didn't. 
I mean, it's not it's right not the Errol Morris documentary. It's a British sitcom that ran from 1995 to 1996. Yeah, I I knew I knew about the. Uh, I, I knew about the fact that there were more things called thin blue line and thin red line. <laughs> oh, that's nice. really that's really my only bit, though. So yeah, sorry. Can you about pretend that. that you didn't know that other things could exist with a common title? <laughs> <laughs> so Stephen Baldwin is very bad in the movie. Who plays um, Wilma? Uh, Wilma is uh, Kristen Jensen from uh, Johnson Sun. Johnson. She'd probably be an okay Wilma. She's funny because she's uh, just a naturally very talented actor, um, similar to Jane Krakowski. Um, the script is terrible, but she's very funny. Um, however, she doesn't really capture any of Wilma. She's just sort of playing, you know, a, 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 a befuddled young woman. Um, she's not really doing any of the Wilma stuff, which I guess since it's a prequel, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, she, you got to grow into your personality. Whereas, like, Fred and Barney are just playing Fred and Barney, <laughs> for better or for worse. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I'm sure Stephen Respectively. Baldwin really got method for it. We didn't talk about the fact that there's Jim Henson designs in this movie. Um, Jim Henson uh, animatronic dinosaurs, which is which are so cool. Which make a ton of sense. Like, it looks like Jim Henson type stuff, which was... Uh, when did dinosaurs come out? That was the Henson Company too, right? I think that was ninety three. It has a very similar sort of vibe, um, except for the fact that in dinosaurs, the dinosaurs are like humanoid or uh, kind of dinosaurs, yeah, um, lizard people um, that run our government. And um, just thought I'd bury that in there. Um, and then, uh, but in the, in this, they're just dinosauroid. They're just cartoon cartoon dinosaur hybrids. Um, but yeah, I think I think this is just like a fundamentally to point us towards the end. I think this is like a it's a fundamentally awkward film, despite the like huge production value of like these Jim Henson style dinosaurs, these amazing sets that feel so tactile and so goddamn cool. And like I think when you have a great talented cast who's good at comedy and and good at character work, um, and like has been on. A, a, a few members of the cast, including like John Goodman uh, and and uh, Rick Moranis, at least, are like talented stage people. Yeah. Um, who are used to working with nothing. If those folks, um, with this tactile, fun, cool set where every every special effect shot involves something physically in front of them, if they can't make these comic moments or these comic gags like even fred falling back in his chair is just not very well executed it's like they didn't take enough takes or something um even if they can't make this 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 really sing um i don't know who could have it's clearly a directorship problem one issue is that apparently uh john goodman had an idea for the character of fred and he was like i'm not gonna watch the original cartoon i'm just gonna do my well, he also didn't. Thing. He also didn't want to be in the movie. Like he had no interest in this. But Steven Spielberg really liked working him, with him yeah. in all ways, and just kind of was like, you know, when fucking Steven Spielberg is like, "You're going to be my my Fred Flintstone," like, and you're John Goodman, and you're trying to like 
because you're trying to make sure you have a career once Roseanne ends. Um, you're going to pay me 10 million rock stones. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the, the key problems with this movie. It got Spielberg in a lot of trouble. He paid he paid uh, John Goodman 10 million bones, so to speak. But he literally sent him bones, which yeah. have no value on the and, current market. And unfortunately, really. it was most of his loved ones. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean... Bill, do you know what the commodity trading is for bones right now? I feel like it's got to be low. Well, actually, you know, I would say low over the past five years. But since, you know, <laughs> the onset of the pandemic in early March, we've seen bones, you know, more than double on their average return. So, really, so as bones become more available because more people have died, the price goes up. It feel, That feels opposite of what it should be. Could you say that, that bones are... For, for people that are in commodity trading for bones, um, bones are their money. <laughs> yes. Yes, you could say that. Would you Would you say anything else is their dollars? <laughs> <laughs> their daughters? What? No, their dollars. I heard their dollars. Why are you talking about their daughters? No, their dollars. <laughs> uh, Aaron wants to marry the heiress to a bone fortune. <laughs> yeah. I'm hoping my kids grow up to marry some nice people with bone fortunes. <laughs> Anyways, I don't know where I was going. Do you with think? That, but yeah, this Le- Peter. Peter, hold on. Do you think? Do you think this is a good episode of the show? <laughs> I have no idea. Do you think it's a better episode of the show than it is a uh, than in relation to our podcast as it is for Spielberg's producer credits to his filmography? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that is the best SAT question yet. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what our worst episodes are, and I imagine this is going to be better than that. Yeah. So, Bill, you haven't talked at all. Let's let's let you talk. Bill, what do you think of the design of the movie? Like, do you think do you think it looks cool, or do you think like you got no joy out of the fact that like this is like these are physical objects? Like, to me, it was absolutely assaulting, and I don't know if it's because like I couldn't <laughs> like get past the fact that like. Everything is supposed to look like rock, but doesn't. Is supposed to weigh like rock, but doesn't. Like, it just, nothing made sense to me. And, like, I couldn't see past that to see any beauty. Like, it was so frustrating that many of the creations would have been more difficult to create or require machinery far more extensive than what they were doing. You're just mad that the physics of it didn't line up. No, maybe I couldn't let it be pretty because of that. Nothing works. Nothing. Like, if you're going to do the cool old devices... There is, like, a lack of internal logic at times, I think. Like, okay, so obviously there's supposed to be cavemen. But the movie went all towards rock. Like, I feel like they abused dinosaurs more effectively. I haven't seen really much of any of this, but, like... The crab is a lawnmower, whatever it is, like the various different animals, the disposal, all that kind of stuff. That makes sense to me. But like, I feel like this was all like, oh, look, we just rounded all the corners of this shopping center and painted it like rock. Like it wasn't interesting to me. So your thing is like, if they would have done this Dogma 95 style, where they literally mine rock and shape it into buildings. No, I think you lean in more to the dinosaurs and less into like, we can manufacture rock in any shape possible. 
some of this is is a little bit of nostalgia, but uh, a lot of it is also just yearning for a period when they would build these sets and like craftsmen would have to sit and like work out every single detail of how their house looked and it needed every object needed to have some sort of physicality to it because you didn't know if the director that day would want to use that object um when fred and wilmer are arguing or whatever um and like that's and it's it's in a sense you didn't know what uh, objects fred would want to threaten to hit his wife yeah like would she be (laughs) unconscious you know would she would he have to hide the body here here's what i think the biggest miss of this movie is you have the b-52s and and they don't do rock lobster seems like a huge mistake yeah they do the bedrock twitch yeah but they could they could do two songs is what i'm saying uh, there's actually there's two songs. They do a modernized version of the Flintstones theme. Oh, that Fred was them. And Wilmer. Yeah, and Fred and Wilmer. It's hard to tell. <laughs> Wait, hold on. Are you joking? Yeah, of course I am. There's only one band that sounds like the B 52s It's like there's Fred Snyder is like I know. That's they're what a I'm... modern Stone Age like... family, and you're like, was that was that? Yeah, that's the why Bobos? I didn't understand your um. Actually, they do two songs, and then you say the theme song. Like, of course I know they do the theme songs. <laughs> <laughs> There's not another band. Oh, that wasn't Velvet Underground. From the town of Bedrock. Who oh, was making '94? Is this Nirvana? This is the Kurt Cobain the kids are listening to? Like, obviously, it's the B-50. First of all, they're in the movie, so even, like, even if I somehow didn't recognize the B-52s. By the way they sound, I could probably, like, infer that they probably did the theme song I was hearing based on the fact that they, they are the the centerpiece of the movie. Stone me, my friend. <laughs> Flint me. Nothing on the top but a bucket and a mop. This is all about a plateau. I wait. You're being blackmailed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the b-52s are in this movie and they are the best part john goodman was like i've got an idea on how i want to do uh my voice and i'm not yeah i'm not that into the original cartoon i haven't seen it i don't really i'm not gonna watch it or you know he wasn't that familiar with it and he was like i've got to wait my want to do a voice and then apparently steven spielberg and brian levant both stepped in and were like you know, huge fans of the cartoon. That's why they're doing this fucking thing. And they're like, actually, you're going to be doing an impression of the cartoon character. And John Goodman apparently was like, wait, you wait, what? So John Goodman had to throw out his voice entirely, which is why I don't entirely blame him for the problems of this movie. But what I do, I do think his performance is highly indicative of all the problems of the movie because he's trying to thread two needles at once he's like he's like all right i have to be silly and do this stupid cartoon voice that the director is yelling at me to do but also i'm trying to make fred relatable so i'm going to add sort of sort of my more john john goodman-y working class like gravelly sort of side and what it ends up being is a a cartoonish asshole who's mean to his wife and fires his friend on a whim. Um, and like, 
the, I, I don't think Fred is a... I think that's fundamentally the problem with the movie. Uh, yes. Like, if they had completely mis- misunderstood the characters, made everyone an asshole, and then they made the movie hilarious. Ex- yeah. Like, this movie could have been funny as shit. And then could all, it have been? Like, we're gonna, as we talked about with Brady Bunch and, and, and the Addams Family movies, like, there are ways to subvert your formula without completely betraying the original subject material, right? Instead, they opt for these, like, the most low-hanging fruit and, like, things that barely qualify as puns. And I'm someone who frequently drops things that barely qualify as puns. However, um, I'm not getting paid $100,000 to do so. Uh, and, And that's kind of, like, that's kind of, like, where this movie lands for me is that, like, the movie has no fucking teeth. If we're gonna talk in dinosaur parlance, the the movie has no, the movie doesn't have anything that like actually sinks into you. Yeah, the closest I had to an emotion is being like, "Wow, Halle Berry is very attractive," and even her performance is terrible. Yeah, I mean, the thing that's uh, for my final thoughts, I'll say the thing that's best about the Fred flintstone voice that john goodman does is that when he's yelling he sounds exactly like al pacino from the devil's advocate which is like <laughs> they're down there <laughs> we're up here um which i think is good uh so i actually think the ideal way to experience this movie um is and this is 100 percent true so they you know they built a whole town in the desert which is why <clears throat> The town looks good. There's no CGI. There's no matte painting. They just built a town in the desert. And while that town was up for about a year, they let people come and tour it um, like it was a theme park. And I have to imagine that was the best way to experience this movie because it does – I know there is a Flintstones theme park in – I think it's New Mexico or Arizona – and uh, I can't imagine it looks as good as this, even now, 26 years later. Like, I I imagine those lucky people that got to go and pay money and go and tour the set because they're like, hey, we built a fucking town and it's really cool to be able to go through it because it looks so goddamn good. Um, yeah. And they did eventually tear that down. That's not what they used for the theme park because it was like a movie space that they built sets on. Um, but I imagine that was the best way to experience this movie. And I know that sounds really insulting. Uh, cause, but like, that's the part that you, if you enjoy this movie at all, uh, I think the part you enjoy is the attention to detail because nothing else really works. And I actually like, I kind of disagree with you, Peter. Like, I definitely think there's a, there's a funny or a good, Flintstones thing to be made. Thankfully, it's not. At one point, Seth MacFarlane was going to make a Flintstones reimagining cartoon at like the height of Family Guy's popularity, and thankfully, it wasn't whatever the fuck that would have been. Um, that would have been way worse. Yeah, and um, I think there actually is one because the reason why all the Flintstones episodes in these movies are on HBO Max right now is that Warner Brothers owns the rights to the Flintstones. Um, and I think they actually are working on some – I think there – I saw something about like Yabba Dabba Dinosaurs and some of the writers looked interesting and um, I'm not sure what it's ultimately going to be. But it's not that I don't think that there's something interesting can be made from this. But I do think it runs into the problem is that ultimately the 60s television show wasn't that good. And the joke in the 60s television show, as I've said, is just 
aren't all these sight gags funny and clever, and that can sustain uh, a 25-minute show in the 60s when there's not that much else uh, vying for, like, like the fact that there's an animated show on TV is enough to watch it, and the fact, like, that that's it. Like, oh, there's an animated show, it shows dinosaurs, this is literally like nothing else on TV, um, I'm gonna watch it, and, uh, I only have to remember 20 minutes of it. I'm going to be wowed by the animation quality that's on my television set. And in between, I'll reminded why I like smoking so much and why I don't like my wife so much. And, like, <laughs> those those are all you need. But that's not enough to make a movie on. As you see, they have an unnecessary embezzlement plot and uh, what it's like to have an affair and what it's like to have or uh, want to have an affair with your secretary and what it's like to have weird economic disparity with your uh, best friend who you worked at a blue collar job with for a long time. Like it's, it's not anything. It's just shit tacked onto the Flintstones and, you know, say what you will about the Adams family movies, the Brady Bunch movies, or even the Beverly Hillbillies movie, which we'll be talking about more next week. At least they were, they were doing Brady Bunch. Like they, they were about the Brady Bunch and the Flintstones is another movie tacked on to a set and a character design. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's pretty apt. Um, I think that the <laughs> I think that this is this is something that I wish that it was like uh, a six episode TV season, and there was just like a a bunch of a bunch of quick little stories, and you yeah. you could see the set from a bunch of different angles, and the cast had a little bit more time to like uh relax in their roles and then get out of there like that yeah i actually more appropriate I, to what this is and I, you're right like because we didn't get that maybe that that brief period of time where that theme park existed is the ideal version yeah i mean i actually think like there's the first 20 minutes of this movie where like they show their houses they get bam bam they uh, fred goes boil bowling like i actually think like Sure, it wouldn't have been probably well-reviewed either, or it wouldn't have had movie conflict in a three-act structure, but I think if they just did Flintstone shit for 80 minutes, that would have ultimately been a more satisfying movie um, to watch. Like, okay, I'm watching the the biggest, like, fan fiction production of something ever, and that would have been more interesting than what we ended up getting. Bill, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, I have a question. How is this so successful? Like, who saw this movie? Marketing blitz. They turned McDonald's's into into like McRocks or whatever bedrock McBedrocks or whatever. I, 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 I mean, ask because it feels like the biggest like bait and switch, where like they can spend money and make it look pretty and get people in there to realize it sucks. Because like. The, the the plot, the script, all of that. Like, who are they targeting? It's like jokes that are not funny for adults, but then content that's inappropriate for kids. It's like, you're not purposefully trying to alienate everyone, right? So, what did who are they going after? And I guess the fact that it was ultimately successful just boggles my mind. Well, but it wasn't like – I mean, it was $130 million domestically successful, which essentially means it had a prime summer slot, which it did, right? It had Memorial Day weekend. It had Steven Spielberg doing more dinosaur shit right after Jurassic Park the year after. It had a recognizable name and a big cast. 
previews that looked fucking amazing for the time in 1994. $130 million basically is like, that's what it is. It's everyone goes and sees it once because you got to see the Flintstones movie and no one goes and sees it more than once. Like, more than once for that time means that um, you make way more than $130 million. So, it was successful, especially when you look at the worldwide box office, which adds another $200 million to that. But it wasn't like a hit hit. Makes me feel better or sleep better at yeah. night. But like, yeah, I, I think like I honestly think like the McDonald's angle is like a oh yeah McDonald's a too. good argument. Like this this shit was uh, advertised everywhere. It had a good pedigree. It had successful stars in it from other programs that like people love to watch. Like this was right between two successful seasons of Roseanne. Um, Rosie O'Donnell was a huge name at the time. Like. I mean, she's just, she's still obviously everybody I think knows who Rosie O'Donnell is over the age of yeah. twenty probably. Um, but um, yeah, the this is the, this is the fifth highest grossing movie of nineteen ninety four. Yeah, like it it, it uh, marketing books is not to be discounted. Like think about the fact that like how much people hate the Joel Schumacher Batman movies. And how they were you would get like commemorative cups at McDonald's. Like, oh yeah. The, the, the Batman Forever had the biggest opening weekend of all time for a while. Yeah, those movies made a shit ton of money. They didn't stop making them because they stopped making money. I would I would love to hear you guys guesses for what the other four were ahead of <laughs> ahead of uh Flintstones. For 94. Yeah. Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump's number 2, 294. 294 million. Flintstones uh, is 130. Is, is is Schindler's List in the top 5? Uh, that was 93. That was the same year as Jurassic Park. Okay. Um... I'll give you a hint. Number four. Uh, now we really are just doing another show's game, but you know what? It's fine. So speed's got to be up there. Speed is number seven at 118 million. That's crazy. I mean, it is crazy a time when, like, the number 10 movie doesn't break 100 million. But, um,. Oh, I know so what it speed is. is number se- 100%. So, number four is a movie we've covered on the show, Peter, and almost covered it again. <laughs> almost covered it again. Santa Claus? Yep. $132 million. Oh, Jesus. Uh, number three is a James Cameron movie. What was his name? Oh, uh, True Lies. Correct. 146. Forrest Gump was two. I know the winner. Four. What's the winner? It's Lion King, right? Yeah. 295. Yeah. Thank goodness. Number yeah, six, my- right below the Flintstones. I have no idea this movie made as much money because they abandoned him in the franchise. Um, and I've actually not seen either this or the one that came before it. Um, although I saw the first one with Alec Baldwin, is clear and pre- pleasant, clear and pleasant danger. Yeah, well, that one's great. Clear and present, a little danger. boring, but um, it's got some awesome sniper scenes. Patriot Games is genuinely a really good movie. Um, clear and present danger has like some of that vibe, but. I wish they had kept that franchise going. I mean, it's number six, and then Speed is seven. Mass, The Mask is number eight. Mrs. Doubtfire is uh, number nine at $110 million. Um, If you would have just said, how much did Mrs. Doubtfire make at the box office? I would have guessed $300 million. Um, number 10. All, is, of the, all of these, I'm like, I feel like they would. I would not have said, like, in the $100 million range. I would have said at least $250. Uh, my, num- my concept of what a hit is is completely altered yeah. for this era. 
Bill, thank you for kind of almost attending a live show. <laughs> um, Happy to be a laugh track. It's always been my ambition anyways from the beginning. Uh, no, it was great having you on, Bill. We'll pick a better movie for you next time. Uh, Peter, next week, we're doing a little movie. Literally, like, a little movie. Like, I don't think anyone saw it except me in theaters because it was at the same fucking theater that the Flintstones was at. Maybe in the same year? Is this from 94? I did not know that this was... I I assumed that this came first, but... No, Beverly Hillbillies was, uh, I guess, before this. Thank you, research. But we haven't done it yet because we haven't recorded the episode. And we're recording it with um, the only person I know that's worse than Jay Leno, Marcus Jones. Oh, I forgot about this bit. I don't know what bit you're talking about. I'm just, you know. Sometimes you have the Antichrist on as your guest. (laughs) I need to recharge. It takes me me like a year to recharge my batteries for uh, the Marcus Aaron uh, conflict. I'm very conflict diverse, Aaron. And then we're going to wrap up the month with um, the Brady Bunch movies. Both a Brady Bunch movie and a very Brady sequel. With a surprise guest, which we will share a little bit later. Have a wonderful night. (laughs) Good night. Heat be upon you, like the the fossil fuel. Well, I got got a woman named Wilma. Well, I got got a baby named Pebble. Well, I got got a doggy named Dino. We do a little boy and we drink a little vino. Well, I got a little buddy, bunny, bunny. By the name of Bonnie Rumble He's a midget but he make a lot of trouble Doesn't like the shape he got Caveman Stoke Thank you so much for listening to We Love to Watch If you made it to the end, hopefully you liked what you heard today. And if you'd like to hear more, please go to patreon.com slash we love to watch. And if you can chip in a few bucks, that would really help us keep the lights on and keep us moving forward. Uh, It wasn't an implicit threat by Peter. He just didn't know how to say it. But either way, we'll continue to make more. But it would be helpful uh, as we explain to our loved ones where all our money is going, which is all on server space. Uh, (laughs) If you can't, (laughs) uh, if you don't have a few bucks to chip in, we totally understand. And you want to support the show. Show, we truly absolutely would appreciate a uh, review on iTunes. I know every podcast says it, and it's because it really does help. And so every podcast wants that help. So please go leave us a positive review so that when people find this show organically, they hopefully want to tune in and listen. And thanks again for all of your listenership and support and time throughout the years. Uh, we really do appreciate you uh, with kisses and smooches, Peter and Aaron. <laughs>